Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. So 1 John 2.13 says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. In this section, in this passage of Scripture, uh, the, in, in the book of John, John is writing to different categories of believers, and he speaks about children, those that are just newborn in Christ, they've just come to faith for the first time. He speaks about young men that have got passion and zeal, who want to serve God faithfully, and then he speaks about fathers, and he talks about how these fathers have known God who is from the beginning. They have a deep knowledge of God. And so I want to share a message with you this morning entitled, I Write to You Fathers. Now, you might hear this morning that my voice is sounding like I've got a little bit of a cold, and that is what happens when you have a newborn baby in winter and don't sleep, all right? So uh, for those of you that don't know, I've just become a dad for the fourth time um, last week. Um, Come on. And this time... This time I got a little girl. So I had three boys. Now I have three boys and one little girl. That's her over there, little Nika. Um, She's so beautiful and uh, so sweet and not at all like my boys. Uh, You know, she she does what she's supposed to do when she's supposed to do it. And so um, I'm running on about two or three hours of sleep as we speak right now. I think I saw three o'clock on the clock at one point on my phone and then at 4 a.m. at some point and then my wife was up at 6 a.m. at some point as well. It was a little bit of a blur. The last couple of days, Will came to my house the other day um, and as he drove in, I was opening up the gates um, and he came in and he looked at me and he said, you look like Monday and Tuesday were a blur and uh, and they were. I don't really remember what happened this past week, but I know that there was a child involved. Um, and so, and so, you know, I sat down to write this message on very little sleep. And so let's just, as you're praying this morning, pray for me uh, and whatever might come out. But these were just some thoughts that I had um, on fatherhood and what it means to be a father and what it means to play the specific role that God has for us. And I think that, I suppose that once you have had four kids or more, when you're a dad of four kids or more, you're then officially qualified to speak on fatherhood, all right? So after now being finally a dad of four kids, I can speak on fatherhood, which I want to speak on today. Um, But for all of our parents here today and for all of the, the dads here today, there's a bit of a cliche that speaks about having a child is almost like having your heart walk around outside of your body for the rest of your life. And that is so accurate. I found that to be so accurate because for those of you that have your own children, you'll know what a gut-wrenching experience it can actually be. It can actually in many ways be torturous to your own soul to have kids. And it's not because of the late nights and the early mornings and all the, the nappies that need to be changed and the lessons that need to be taught and the things that need to be done. No, the reason why having a kid can be one of the most torturous experiences to a human being on this earth is because of how much you care. It, it's difficult to care that much. 
Come on, parents. How often do you wish you could care a little less so that your life could take on some form of healthier shape and, and routine and rhythm in life? Because, you know, I, I drove yesterday, I drove 45 minutes to buy my son a cricket bat because he has cricket tour this week coming up. I'm like, why am I driving to the other side of the province for a cricket bat? And it's because I love my kids too much. It's because I care too much. And caring to that extent can be torture because caring, you end up as a, as a parent caring so much about your kids that you ultimately care more about them than you do about yourself. And I really believe that that is part of God's plan for us as parents. And I'm going to speak about different kinds of parents in a moment, but I really believe it's part of God's plan for us that we would come to a place where we love someone more than we love ourselves. Because in the kingdom of God, that's what maturity looks like. That's what it looks like to be Christ-like. That's what it looks like to become more like Jesus, is when you love someone more than you love yourself. And so parenthood offers us the opportunity to enter into rare air, into a greater understanding of a God kind of love where we would be willing to lay down our own lives for our children or for those that we love in the same way that God loved us so much that He laid down His own life for us. You'll never really be mature until you love something or someone more than yourself. John 3 verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved you and I that He gave up His own Son to be crucified on the cross because that's how much He loves us as His kids. That's how much He cares about us. The Bible says that for the joy that was set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. That joy of seeing those who had been separated from God and had gone lost and gone astray, be reunited with the Father was the joy that was set before Jesus. And so there was not a single thing God would not give in order to save and protect and love His children. And in the same way, for my own life as a dad, there's nothing I wouldn't give for my kids. There's nothing I wouldn't do for them or to give them what they need. Now that I have a daughter, it's even more so. I've heard people say that, that when you have a, a son, you know instantly that you'd be willing to die for them. When you have a daughter, you know instantly you'd be willing to kill for them. Right? So I just wanted to say, because I know that we've got a lot of baby boys being born here at Anchor Church at the moment. I just wanted to say that no boy will be allowed to date my daughter <laughs> until he can recite the entire Torah. All right? That's the prerequisite. You have to recite the Torah and raise at least one person from the dead, and then maybe you can go on a supervised date, okay? <laughs> That's the standard that we're setting right now. But in Matthew 7 verse 11, the Bible says that if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? See, we as, as parents here today would give anything for our kids, and yet the Bible describes our efforts as evil in comparison to the goodness of our Father. 
And I was thinking about that this morning. Beyond honoring our earthly fathers, who we definitely are honoring today, can we take a moment to celebrate and honor the heavenly father that we have? And the fact that this heavenly father that we have is not just a good father, but a perfect father. Come on, it's so reassuring. I was thinking about this this morning. It's so reassuring that our father is perfect in wisdom, perfect in love, perfect in grace, perfect in all of his plans. He doesn't have a single plan concerning you that isn't absolutely perfect. And to me, that is so reassuring to know that my father in heaven has got perfect plans and grace for my life and that his love endures forever. That he is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That he is a father to the fatherless. That he is tender and compassionate. That he is the protector of widows and the lover of our souls. That's the God who is our father. He doesn't just invite us in to be servants. We do serve God, but he says, I call you friends. I, I call you family. You are children of God. Not just people who attend church. Not just people who are a part of a religion. Not just people who have a belief system. But children of God. And I really believe that there is a key revelation, a key difference between calling yourself a Christian and calling yourself a child of God. And knowing what it really means to be a child of God. Ponce on my mic, I'm still hearing kind of like a weird sound, like a tinniness going on. We face a pandemic in our world that is greater than any virus, greater than any disease, and it is the pandemic of fatherlessness. It's an area in our society that has come under incredible attack. And so I was reading a book by John Tyson on fatherhood and this is what he wrote. He said, the role of fatherhood is one of the most overlooked yet crucial roles in our society. The data and our own experience could not be clearer. When a father is present, emotionally healthy and involved in a child's life, the child has a tremendous advantage in the world to navigate its complexities and challenges with joy and confidence. The, the data, the scientific data as well as our own experiences, are incredibly clear on this. When dads are present, when they're emotionally healthy, when they're engaged with their kids, their kids are healthier. The family is healthier. The community is healthier. Here's just a few stats relating to how the absence of fathers is impacting our society, and this comes from fatherhood.org. Children without fathers are four times more likely to end up living in poverty are more likely to suffer emotional and behavioral problems, have higher levels of aggressive behavior than children born into married homes, are more likely to go to prison. Only one in five prison inmates grew up with a father present. One in five had a dad. The other four didn't. And are twice as likely to be involved in early sexual activity. There's so many more stats around the absence of a father and a father figure in a home and how it impacts on the identity of 
a person growing up, male and female, not just the sons, but the sons and the daughters are impacted when there is a lack of a father. When I was in university and I was doing my theology degree, I did my thesis on violence in schools. I was a youth pastor and I had noticed that there was a a real issue at that time when I was doing this in the schools with fighting and bullying going on. And so I decided to do my thesis on violence in schools. It was called The Devil's Playground. And I went to five different high schools in our area, and I interviewed the principals of those schools and asked them certain questions to try and figure out what was the common denominator with all these kids that were getting into fights, that were acting violently. And there were serious violence. I mean, I'm talking about uh, like prison-level assault taking place, kids beating each other, bringing golf clubs to school to hit each other with and things like that, like absolute all-out gangsterism happening in the schools and kids being put in ICU as a result of these fights that were taking place. And it was shocking to sit with some of those high schools. I remember sitting with one principal and saying, how often do you have a serious fight in this school? It was a large high school, about 1,000, 1,300 kids. And, uh, and he said, every single day. And I wanted to know, who are the kids that engage in this violent behavior? Is it socioeconomic? Is it race-based? Is it age-related? Is it culture-dependent? And out of all of the interviews I did and the entire study I conducted, I found that there was only one common denominator with almost all the kids that acted violently and got involved in regular fighting at school. And it was this one thing, fatherless homes. Fatherless homes, single moms trying to raise children by themselves, unable to disciple those, those kids, especially those boys, into mature and responsible manhood. I remember hearing the story, actually there was a movie made about this, um, uh, more of a documentary, not a movie like something you'd go watch um, at the movies, but um, uh, about the elephants of the Pilansburg National Park. Now, many of you have probably gone out to Pilansburg. It's about a three, three and a half hour drive from here. And maybe you've gone out there and taken a look. And uh, I, I always get a little nervous around Pilansburg because the elephants are a little different. I don't know if you've noticed that, but they just like messing with cars uh, in the Pilansburg. I give them like extra space when I go and visit there as compared to the Kruger. But when the park was established in the 1970s, they obviously didn't have elephants there. They were establishing this park as a big five park and they were transporting elephants. And it's really difficult and expensive to transport fully grown six ton elephants um, from the Kruger all the way out um, to, to the Pilansburg. And so what they did at the time was they brought in more than 50 six-year-old orphaned elephants, many of them male elephants. And as these elephants began to grow and they, they you know, came of age in, in, the, in terms of size and strength, they literally became delinquents. They became bullies and went into must, which is their time of sexual activity, about 10 years earlier than elephants are supposed to go into must. It sounds like that stat that says that, that children that grow up without a father in the home become sexually active way earlier than they should. This happened to elephants. They didn't have father figures around, and these elephants became sexually active, went into must, 
ran around terrorizing the other herds of elephants. And in fact, they then found, they started finding dead rhino all over the park. And in a period of about two weeks, 40 rhinos were killed by elephants, by these young elephants. And eventually somebody witnessed what was happening at a waterhole as an elephant actually made a sexual advance towards the rhino. The rhino was obviously like, I'm not down for this, tried to get away, and the elephant just gored the rhino to death. 40 rhinos were killed. This was happening simultaneously uh, in Kenya at another park, and somebody actually said, there's a lack of mentorship. There's a lack of old bulls in the area. And so they did this as an experiment, and they brought in five old, big elephant bulls from the Kruger National Park and transported them to the Pilansberg. And what happened next was a showdown. These young bulls thought that they ruled the roost, and these old bulls very quickly put them in their place. There's, there's actual footage. I've watched this documentary of one elephant one of these old bulls chasing one of the young ones down the road, just like as far as he can go, just letting him know that he's no longer the king in this town, that there are mentors now, that there are older bulls. And all of a sudden, those young um, elephant bulls that had become delinquent stopped going into must, fell into place, and began being mentored by the older bulls into what it looks like to be responsible members of their herd. And so this is a fascinating study about how even in the animal kingdom, God has set up fathers for the purpose of mentorship and the purpose of molding young ones. Is there any wonder then that Satan has specifically targeted and attacked the role of men and fathers in our society. Men have been painted as the scourge of society, as what's wrong with society. And the idea that there are some things that men can do that women can't do is offensive in our world. The role of a man has been downplayed to the point where people think that there is no real good to a man. Men have been shamed. And their role has been put under siege. Terms like toxic masculinity take aim at everything that makes masculinity sacred. We did not design masculinity. It's not a social construct. It's a God-given attribute. God created masculinity. And if you go and read the Bible, God himself is masculine. He has, obviously, men and women are created in his image, and he has the feminine side of him as well, but, but God is masculine. And masculinity is not toxic. Valor and honor and chivalry and leadership has been put under siege in our world and in our time as abusive and shameful. I was listening to my boys have a conversation with some strange people on holiday, people that came to visit and um, they were friends of friends, and they were kind of sitting there, and they were very artistic. So artistic that, and I might have shared this before, but the one guy had rocks in his car that he was taking, like actual big rocks in his car, suspensions like about to snap. He's taking to his parents' house to fix the energy around their home, right? These are the kinds of people. And I'm like, 
wondering how I'm, st- I'm standing inside the house. My boys are outside on the porch having this conversation, and they are talking about the most manly things you can talk about. My boys are just because my boys, you know, my boys, they are boys. They love rugby and hunting. And so they're talking to these people about rugby and hunting. And I can see them through the window, through the, through the blinds. They're rolling their eyes at these boys that are, you know, speaking about all these boy things. And eventually they said, you must tell your dad that he must also take you to the ballet and teach you to do art. Now, I love art. My wife has a degree in fine art. I love to read. I love to write. I, I, I love poetry, um, and, so, and so I'd even give the ballet a go. But the idea that allowing my boys to be boys and to allow them to be the warriors that God created them to be is somehow toxic enculturation. That idea is in itself toxic enculturation. We are being toxically enculturated to believe that teaching boys that being a boy is okay is toxic. And we are robbing a generation of men of their identity and of their God-given role. See, the enemy knows that if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. If you can remove the father, or better yet, get the father so ashamed of himself that he removes himself, then that God-given protection is removed and becomes lacking. And further to that, if the enemy can corrupt the idea of the Father in our minds, he ultimately corrupts our idea of God, who is the Father. He can get us to turn away from our Heavenly Heavenly Father. I remember hearing the story from a pastor in Jakarta, Indonesia, Pastor Eddie Leo of Abelove Ministries out there, works a lot um, with the people of Indonesia, has an incredible church. And he spoke about a boy who came into their church, or a man, he was a man, but he came into this church and struggled to simply believe that God could be loving, that anybody called Father could show love. And as they journeyed with this Young man, they found that when he was a boy, he had once stolen a pig. He, they lived, he lived on a farm and stole one of his dad's pigs, took it to the market, sold it, and used the money to buy sweets. And when his dad found out, his dad tied him to a tree and beat him nearly to death. And in all of his thinking, and all of his trying to relate to God, and every time he heard the gospel and he heard the word, the father, he just connected that with what his father was. And so, so many times we don't know how to relate to God the father because we perhaps haven't had a good example of an earthly father. And that's why it's so important for us to know two things. Firstly, that God is not like earthly fathers. God is a perfect father and a loving father and a compassionate father. But secondly, it also shows us as men of this house how important it is to be godly fathers in order to help our kids relate to our heavenly father. We are a representative on this earth of our heavenly father. It's important that we impress this heart of God on our kids. Romans 8 verse 14 to 16 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, our, our relationship with God is not fear-based. It's grace-based. It's intimate. It's a dad loving his kids so much that he would give up everything for them. There's this deep inner knowledge that we have been adopted by God as his very own children, not as slaves needing us to fear, but by the spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And so I want to say to all the men here today, I want to give you a few quick points on what it means to be a godly man. And the first thing that I want to say is you'll never fulfill God's purpose as a father until you learn to become a son. Godly fathers are faithful sons. If you want to be a good father spiritually, biologically, or in any other way, if you want to be a good father, you need to know what it is to be a son, a son of God, a son of the true God. God's love towards me is the model for my own fathering, for the, the parenting of my own children. And as I lead my own kids, it's not based on how deserving they are or how much they honor me as their dad or what gifts they gave me for Father's Day. But it's based on the love I received from my heavenly Father. I don't love my kids because they're lovable because many times they're not. I mean, my daughter, she's cute. And it's such a good thing because at 3 a.m., I need that cuteness to continue. But I don't love my kids because they're lovable. I love them because I know I'm loved by my father. And many fathers struggle to be fathers because they don't know what it means to be a son that is loved. And so we have different kinds of fathers in this world. There's the irresponsible father. That's one that has literally zero involvement with their kids. Someone who's completely, who completely bails on their kids to the point that they don't even know who he is. Then there's the ignorant father. This is the type of father that has no idea what he's doing and he's continually wreaking havoc in the lives of his children. He doesn't know anything about being a father and he doesn't try to learn or to improve. Because of all of this, he ends up projecting his own brokenness onto the lives of his children. Then you have the inconsistent father who is torn by his personal ambition. He has the capability of doing better at this fathering thing, but instead prioritizes his own job, his own career, his own hobbies. And these binges of selfishness are often followed by guilt and feeble attempts to fix everything with his kids. There's no stable sense of security or identity passed to his children. Then you have the involved father. This type of dad shows up at sporting events, gets a lot of things right, but because of the busyness of life and the failure to ask the right questions, he never seeks to understand specifically who his children are and how 
and why God gave them to him. This is a noble dad, but one haunted by the sense that there's something more, another layer or another level to his parenting that he hasn't quite figured out. And then finally, you have the intentional father. An intentional father is deeply invested in discovering who his children are and how he can help them reach their redemptive potential. He seeks to understand the children God has given him and wants to form them into young persons who can fulfill their purpose. He sees his role as a parent as central to his call before God and does it with all of his might. And this father leaves multi-generational blessings in the lives of his children. A dad who is intentional makes plans to raise his kids. I remember uh, Will and I used to work with a friend of ours by the name of Christoph. Christoph was a pastor in a church that Will and I worked at together. And, and I remember when the workday was over, Christoph would usually say, it's time for me to go home and be a dad. And it's such a simple statement that he said, but I understood that sometimes, you know, we go to work and we give our work everything and then we go home and our family get the scraps. They get the exhausted us. They get the, you know, the, 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 just the kind of like the nod of, of I'm here, but I'm not really here. But I picked up in that statement of my friends the intentionality of I'm going to go home to be a dad. It's time for me to play that role. So point number two, godly fathers are intentional fathers. Godly fathers are intentional fathers because God is an intentional father. The Bible says that God laid out every plan for your life before there was even one of them. Every day was ordained before you had your first breath. And they are good plans to give you a hope and a future. God made a plan for our redemption before we were even born. His intention was to bring us into a relationship with him where he could look at you and say, you are my son, you are my daughter. And as we see in the story of the prodigal son, which is representative of the heart of God, that's how God receives his kids. That's his love. He, he runs out. Charles Spurgeon says that, that when God comes to meet us, he comes flying in his compassion and his arm is about our neck, kissing us much. That's the heart of our father. He's intentional. He's provided for us the redemption that we need. So in John's first letter to the church, he says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. So he's talking here not just about biological fathers, but now he's, he's talking about spiritual fathers. And he's saying spiritual fathers are those who have a deep knowledge of and trust in Christ. They have matured in grace. They know what it is to walk with God. And he says, mature men of the house, I write to you because you have a role to play. You have a duty to fulfill, not only in your families, but in the body of Christ. Your leadership is required. He goes on two verses later to say, do not love the world or the things of the world. 
And as godly fathers, we set an example of how to live free from worldly lusts and to walk in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul writes, For even if you were to have 10,000 teachers to guide you in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers who led you to Christ and assumed responsibility for you. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the good news of salvation, through the gospel. And so we can become fathers when we lead people to Christ. And then what do godly fathers do once they've led people to Christ? Godly fathers assume responsibility. Assume. It doesn't even have to be delegated. It doesn't even have to be said. They've assumed the responsibility for those they've led to Jesus. Assuming responsibility for means being intentional in your presence. Think about God as our Father. He is so intentionally present with us. His presence is so reassuring. It's so overwhelming. It's so deep. We experience His acceptance and His love and His grace and, His, and, His, and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit in those moments when we, we feel God's presence. God is present. And if you're going to assume responsibility for somebody as a godly father in this house, whether it's your own kids or people that you're discipling, you need to be present. You cannot be an absent father. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. We should not leave those that we're encouraging as orphans. A godly father protects just like God protects and provides just as God provides. In short, dads are to raise their children. Be present in raising their children spiritually and biologically. This term to raise a child actually comes to us from Roman times when a wife would have a child, the child would be brought to the father and as a symbol or a sign that the dad was accepting that child into the home and accepting the responsibility for that child, the child would be taken and lifted up to the sky, literally to raise a child. So to raise a child means I have welcomed this child into my life and I assume responsibility for it. That's what dads do. That's what spiritual dads do. They accept the responsibility and they have a plan. I've started doing discipleship lessons with my own boys where I get them around the table and we open up the Bible and we work through different courses together because I've accepted responsibility to disciple my kids. And what I want to say to you is additionally to that is that the church needs those kinds of fathers. Men of maturity who know what it means to follow Christ. Fathers are men of stability and strength. And the church needs you, men, to be those men. The church does not need more fickle men. The church does not need more men that sleep in every other Sunday that treat church as an option, that don't exhibit godly values. Your family and society and our world does not need those kinds of men. We need men 
that are going to live value-based, faith-based lives in the house of God. Being pillars of the house. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, if burglars are planning to attack a house, they care little about the children and make small account of the boys. But if, a fatherly man, men, but if fatherly men are about, the thieves are not eager for an encounter. Even thus, the arch deceiver has hope of injuring the church by deceiving the little children and the young men. But the stalwart men of God who walk in the midst of the household, looked up to by everybody, are not so readily blown to and fro. As the Spartans pointed to their citizens as the real walls of Sparta, so do we point to these substantial men as under God the brazen walls and bulwarks of the church. Men who are well taught, confirmed, experienced, and trained by the Spirit of God are pillars in the house of our God. It may be said each of them, he keepeth himself so that the evil one toucheth him not. These are men at arms who know how to wear the armor which God has provided and to use the sword of the Spirit, which, the word, which is the word of God. These are men of strong faith and firm convictions, men of decisions and courage, men of prudent action, in no hurry through fear and under no excitement through false hope. These are not men that retract or shuffle or evade but witnesses who are faithful and true, imparting confidence to the feebler sort by their calm defiance of the foe. Oh, that all Christians would grow into such solid saints. What, what God has called us to, men. Finally, godly fathers are men of heart. Godly fathers are men of heart. Men who naturally care for the souls of others. Now, it's one thing to care for your own kids. That's quite a natural impulse. But there's something supernatural that happens when men in the church begin to deeply care for the souls of other people in the church. And that's the kind of godly fatherhood that God wants to lead us all towards. Where the weight of the household is on the father. A father doesn't live for himself, but for the family gathered about him. His whole world isn't comprised around his own personal self, but he lives in all in the house, especially in his own children. Their suffering and their want would be his suffering and his want. His heart has grown larger than when he was a child or a young man. Because now his heart beats in all who are in that household of which he is the life. So it's a powerful thing when Christian men and women come to this level of ownership and maturity in the church where they are not perpetually thinking of their own salvation or their own souls being fed under the ministry, but they care for all those who are weak and feeble around them in the church. During a service, their thoughts go out to the other people in the room, not just to their own wants and their own needs, but they're anxious about how that stranger might be impressed by the sermon. 
or how an anxious heart might be comforted, or how a backsliding brother might be restored, or how someone who is growing cold may be revived. They would pray silent prayers for that person because their hearts are to be parents in the house. They're thinking about the souls and the journeys of others. And this paternal care reveals the heart of a true father in the church. Our prayer is that God would multiply the number of those who feel it is their life work to play that kind of a role in the church of Jesus Christ. Having this care, a father becomes tender. The Bible says that God is a father who is tender and compassionate. In this way, fathers partake in the tenderness of a mother, often called a nursing father. A true father, such as fathers should be, have a tender love for all the little ones. And it's a great blessing to the church of Jesus when the leading spirits of the church are loving and tender, not rough, rough and uncouth and domineering or bullying, but gentle and Christ-like. I want to finish with this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, Is not the father the laborer for the children? Does, not, does he not lay up for them? Is not his superiority best seen by his doing more for the family than anyone else? This is how Christians grow great, by making themselves greatly useful to others. If you are a slave of all, willing to do anything so that you can but help them and make them happy and holy, this is to be a father in the church of God. Sympathetic care and hearty tenderness are gifts of the Holy Spirit and will bring you a happiness which will richly compensate you for your pains. To be fathers in the house, tender and compassionate. So, ladies... Kids, let's stand by our men. Let's pray for them. Let's support them. Let's affirm them. Let's encourage them. Let's hear them. Let's pray for them and honor them and respect them and submit to them. Because as men flourish, so the family flourishes. And we can take this example that we have of our tender loving God as our pattern for healthy masculinity and fatherhood in our world. Amen.